It's good to be back again. Uh, hope everyone had a restful evening uh, afterwards. I uh, that uh, reflection on the uh, Chinese graduates having to preach with five minutes of notice is sort of daunting. Um, but I remember when I was ordained uh, at the. Uh, meeting where they were asking me theological questions and this sort of thing to see, you know, which I had to pass to be ordained. Uh, one, one pastor said, uh, please open the Philippians 3 and give us a 10-minute sermon. I said, now? He said, right now. So it happens in America too. Um, so it's uh, quite challenging. If you would, uh, turn with me to Second Timothy, please. 2 Timothy, our focus text is verses 1 through 7. We will read and then ask God's guidance for a time today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we title this, Guarding the Good Deposit of Scripture or Being Diligent About the Word of Truth. Chapter 2, then beginning at verse 1 of 2 Timothy. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive a share of crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, let's pray. Father, give us understanding of your word today, that we may thank your thoughts after you, say those things pleasing to you, and do those things honoring to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today we live in a technological age which allows us to live in great ease. We don't have to exert ourselves to travel long distances, whether overseas or across the country, whereas 150, 200 years ago this took great labor and amazing commitment and expense. We're able to get our food immediately from a store instead of toiling in the fields. Uh, Many of us uh, don't even have gardens because we don't have time to take care of that and we consider that quite a task. We have electric shavers, electric toothbrushes, microwave ovens, so we don't even have to move our arms much uh, in the process of uh, brushing our teeth or uh, cooking our food. Um, Not long ago, well, some time ago, actually, uh, I read in the news, this was in the 90s, but it seems like 1990, that they were talking about in 10 years we're going to have robotic maids. Well, now I'm watching commercials on television advertising robotic vacuum cleaners. And so it's, uh, it's coming to pass. Uh, soon we probably will uh, have robotic maids who can do more the vacuum. Uh, the availability of the personal computer uh, uh, in last years uh, has made our labor uh, in thinking much easier. I think it was in the late 80s or early 90s a Time magazine named the computer the man of the year. Um, well, how is this modern ease 
affected our own spiritual lives as Christians? Um, How has our contemporary ability to get things and do things so effortlessly affected our spiritual lives? Well, I think it may be one contribution to the spiritual uh, laziness uh, in the church, even the evangelical church. We become lazy, and that spiritual laziness has spawned uh, really uh, uh, false teaching, a situation uh, uh, from which uh, the soil from which false teaching can come. Uh, whatever the ultimate reasons are for this spiritual laziness, uh, it is the case, I think, that uh, there is a kind of atmosphere of spiritual laziness in the church and among Christians today. Our passage this morning here in Second Timothy, verses 1 to 7, will give us specific responses that we should have to the lazy attitude of the age, especially that's infected the church and affects our spiritual lives, especially as that has spawned false teaching. Now, we, we need to understand how this passage fits in to 2 Timothy, the passage that we have read. So what's going on? Why is Paul writing? Well, you'll notice in chapter 2, in verse 15 of our epistle, just a few verses later, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. But why is it so important to handle accurately the word of truth? Did Paul just sort of say, well, the Bible's important. Handle it accurately. Well, there's more to it than that. Verse 16, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Well, what, what's empty chatter? It's false teaching. For look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Well, what's their false teaching? Verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Now, this is a false teaching that's not ancient. That is something that just took place in the first century. This idea that the resurrection has already taken place uh, is held by some who contend that they're within the evangelical fold. They're called preterists. I don't know if you've heard that word, but they believe that basically in 70 A.D., the the spiritual resurrection occurred uh, in in, in the final judgment of all things. Christ's resurrection, they believe, was physical, but there will not be a physical resurrection of the rest of the saints. And that's what these people were arguing, that there's going to be no physical resurrection. It was a false teaching. Why is that false teaching so bad, by the way? So what? I mean, if we're saved spiritually. In fact, many evangelicals think of salvation primarily as spiritual. And, of course, that's true. Christ took the penalty of our sins so we wouldn't have to suffer it. And we're now justified. We're in a spiritual condition now of uh, resurrection and in a saving relationship with God spiritually. Why is the resurrection of the body necessary? Well... If we're not raised from the dead at the very end of the time, then the uh, curses of Adam, the full curses, are not removed. Because if you remember in Genesis 2, there would be death if he disobeyed. Not just spiritual death, but physical death. This is very important. And this is why Timothy, uh, here Paul is telling Timothy, this is a very crucial thing. In fact, Paul has excommunicated these false teachers. This is a teaching leading to... Damnation, ultimately. It is a heresy. There's a difference between false teaching and heresy, by the way. Uh, Heresy is a teaching that leads to unbelief. 
There can be false teachings that are not that significant. But in 1 Timothy at the end, Paul says in verse 19, keep the faith, a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Probably uh, he has excommunicated them. So we're in a situation then of false teaching. And by the way, this situation of false teaching to which our passage is a response. Remember, there's spiritual laziness that has spawned a context of false teaching. And Paul is responding to that. And this false teaching is very important in a redemptive historical way. That is in terms of uh, the plan of the Bible. For the Bible says in the Old Testament in the end times, there's going to be a final tribulation. And among the major marks of that tribulation is persecution and false teaching. And when did that begin? first century. Did it continue? Yes. Has it continued? Yes. I would contend something a little bit surprising, that in fact, the great tribulation started in the first century, and it will be consummated at the end in a more intense way. But you'll notice in chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul says, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, is that yet future for Paul? Yes. Has it begun? We'll look at verse 6. He uses the present tense. For among these false teachers are those who are entering into households, captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses in Egypt, so these men, present tense, also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Verse 10, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose. Uh, purpose, faith, patience, love, uh, and perseverance. In other words, it's yet to come and it's going to grow worse, but it has begun. The latter days and this prophecy of false teaching has begun. Just think of 1 John 2.18. It's an amazing text. I mean, I used to think, I remember I went all the way through seminary, four-year THM, did an MA in historical theology, and when I thought of Jesus' resurrection... Uh, I thought only of, well, that demonstrated that he was God, and it sealed the fact that he died for sin, and all of that is true. But not once did I think of his resurrection as the beginning of the end times. What happened to him is what will happen to us at the very end of time. The end times are broken in. The new creation is broken in through Christ's death and resurrection. And likewise, the end time tribulation is broken in. The death of Christ is the beginning of that tribulation, and we follow in his footsteps. We follow the Lamb, Revelation 14, wherever he goes. And so false teaching and persecution will come upon his people. Uh, Some have said, well, the great tribulation hadn't started because Revelation 9 says there'll be apocalyptic stinging scorpions. It'll be something we've never seen before. That hasn't happened yet. Well, um, what is uh, more of a sign of the great tribulation? That? Yeah, that, that certainly could be a sign. How about the death of God? Does that rank with stinging scorpions? I think it does. And I think that the great tribulation started then. He was in the midst of false teaching, persecuted when he didn't uh, compromise, and that false teaching has continued. The latter days are here. 1 John 2.18 can say this, My little children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, I say many Antichrists have already come. From this we know it is the last hour. Now that last hour comes from Daniel 8. 
11 and 12 that predicts the great last tribulation that in the Greek text, one of the Greek texts of Daniel says it'll be in the last hour. It's begun. And it's begun in uh, the churches to which Paul is writing and writing to Timothy. I remember that uh, um, when I studied First and Second Timothy and Titus in seminary, professor was a wonderful professor. And in fact, uh, his teaching uh, and his lecture notes have made an indelible mark on me, and they show themselves in uh, even what I'm saying uh, this morning. Um, uh, made an amazing imprint because it was the first time I, I really studied uh, this passage. But I, I do remember he would be one who would say, no, the latter days didn't start in the first century. They're only going to begin at the very end of time. And yet, if we really understand that the latter days have begun, then I think we're going to be a little bit more on our toes rather than saying, oh, I'm just going to be raptured out of here. I'm not going to have to face that great tribulation. Whatever one thinks about the rapture, the tribulation has begun now. And there are people selectively from the first century until now who have suffered an extreme form, not only of facing false teaching, but of persecution. Forms that are equal to the kind of universal tribulation that will, people will face at the very end of time. But selectively so, not all of the church, but at the end it will be universal persecution. But the church is always, if it's not infiltrated with false teaching, it's threatened by false teaching. So uh, what's going on here? We'll look at verses 1 through 2 of our passage. You therefore, my son, be strong uh, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have Heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, this, this phrase in verse 2, entrust to faithful men, is developing chapter 1 in verses 13 to 14. Notice chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, Hold the example of sound words. First of all, the, he heard from Paul and he's to be example to others. Hold the example of sound words. My translation has retained the standard of sound words, which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you, or guard the good deposit which has been entrusted to you. So when in chapter 2 and verse 2, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, that word entrust is the verbal form of the good deposit back in 1.13. We could, we could put it this way. Um, entrust, in verse 2, the good deposit to the faithful men. Well, what's the good deposit? It's the apostolic tradition that Paul received. What's the apostolic tradition? Well, it's the good news about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, as that's understood uh, in the light of the Old Testament, being a fulfillment of it. Uh, that apostolic tradition, that good deposit, was becoming Scripture, and it is Scripture now for us. So this is really uh, the authoritative apostolic deposit. It is uh, what was becoming Scripture and what we have in our hands now. Um, So Paul is continuing then in in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, saying, uh, look, guard that good deposit uh, that I told you to guard in uh, uh, chapter 1. Uh, Pass this on. The way you guard it is passing it on to faithful people who can preserve it and teach it as well. But how is Paul uh, telling Timothy that he can do that? Look at verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. It's a command. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God is the one who will enable Timothy to obey Paul's commands. He can't do it on his own power. It's clear from the following phrase. By the grace which is in Christ Jesus. See that at the end of verse 1. Timothy can't even understand what Paul is saying apart from God's empowerment. Look at verse 7. Consider what I say, Timothy. Why? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, some would say, well, if that's the case, let's just sit back and let the Lord do it all. Um, It's very interesting in verse 1. He's commanded to be strong in God's grace. Now, again, my, my professor who I learned so much from, uh, in, in this, this course on First, uh, Second Timothy and Titus, he would say you pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps autonomously and you have the power within yourself to please God. Paul is saying no. Uh, if you're going to please God, it's by God's grace. Does that mean we should sit back and do nothing? I don't think so. In fact, I think knowing that we have power to do something inspires us, actually psychologically, spiritually motivates us to want to please the Lord. I believe last night we were reading in 1 Corinthians. I want to read that to you again. You don't have to turn there. But in chapter 15, remember what Kelly read uh, in verse 10 of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, But I labored even more than all of them by my own autonomous will apart from God. No. Let's read it again. I labored even more than all of them, but not I, but the grace of God with me. Well, shouldn't we just sit back there and let God move us? I don't think so. I like to compare this to my neighbor. I lived in Wheaton, Illinois, where it snows quite a bit. snows in Philadelphia, too. Um, but my neighbor, when it started snowing, he was right out there with his amazing snowblower. It was brand new. His wife, I think, had bought it for him. And, uh, I mean, half an inch, and boy, he, he was out there. You heard the snowblower going. Uh, me? No. Mm-mm. No, I, I would have to let it, it would have to snow a lot. I mean, I wanted to make sure it was finished snowing because I didn't have the snowblower. I had a shovel, and it was a very rusty shovel anyway. Wasn't too good. So I had to really wait. His wife didn't even have to command him to get out there. He's right out there. He loved it. I had to get the implicit command. It was, hey, you know, how are we going to get out of the driveway in the morning? And so, and I had no desire to fulfill the command because I really didn't have the ability to. And so what's the difference between me and my neighbor? He had the ability. I don't. When you have the ability to do something, you have the motivation to do it. And further, that was probably empowered more If his wife gave him that gift, then he would want to please her as well. So it's not just empowerment, but gratitude for the gift. And so actually, it's those who don't have the power to do something that Paul says have no motivation. Remember Ephesians 1, chapter 2, 1 and following. It says that unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. They're controlled by the ruler of the power of the air and of the world, and by their own sin nature, and they have no desire to please God. Those are people who have no desire. But he contrasts that in chapter 2 and verse 10 of Ephesians with saying that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works which God prepared beforehand. No, this, this, this should inspire Timothy, not make him want to sit back, and it should inspire us. As Augustine said, I love this statement in his confessions, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul is telling Timothy to pass on this good deposit to others who can guard it and trust it and teach it and pass it on to generations. It's an idea of discipleship. Now, when we come to verses 3 through 6, we find three specific responses to the spiritual laziness of the age that spawns false teaching, especially to the false teaching in this epistle. It doesn't take long in one sitting. If you read First and Second Timothy, almost in every paragraph, there's a reference to the false teaching. That's why Paul is writing. It's not just something to come in the future. It has come, and it's part of this latter-day trial. By the way, this uh, uh, text here in First and Second Timothy is written to Timothy for him to be a leader. Does that mean it has no relevance for you and me? Is this just for Christian leaders? Um, well, I think that's the first thing on the top of Paul's mind. But secondarily, I do think this includes all of us. Let me, let me, let me explain why, and I, and I want to be very clear about this so you can know that what we're talking about is not just for Christian leaders and ministers. Yes, it is. But it's secondarily for all of us. For example, in 1 Timothy, and in verse 16, Paul said, Yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's salvation is an example for everybody. Um, we find also in chapter 4 of the first uh, epistle, it says, verse 12, Let no one, Timothy, look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example of those or to those who believe. Show you an example to those who, who believe. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Uh, he says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture in verse 13, to exhortation and to teaching. So Paul's concern that Timothy grow in the Scriptures and study them and read them is an example for everybody, not just Christian leaders. So that when we come to our own epistle, for example, in uh, chapter 3 in verses 15 to 17, we find the famous statement about Scripture. Chapter 3, 15, From childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And this is for you alone, Timothy. No. All Scriptures God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's not just for the Christian leader. Yes, that's the focus, but it is for all of us, even in Titus. And I really want to drive this home because I don't want you thinking you're off the hook here. Oh, this is for leaders. Chapter 2 and verse 7 of Titus. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. So Titus is to be one who is... In, in, in his understanding of the Bible and the doctrine of the Bible is to be an example for all. 
so that they also would be pure in their understanding of the doctrine of the scriptures. So uh, our first response then, Paul's first response to the lazy spiritual attitude of the age that had spawned this false teaching, that first response is verses 3 to 4. Let's read it. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What's going on here? Paul is saying, I think, still having in mind this good deposit should be guarded in chapter 1 and beginning here in 2, 1 through 2. He's saying we must guard the treasure of Scripture by suffering in a loyal way. Guard it loyally. The idea is the picture of the soldier. Christ claims over us, whether leaders or Christians, must take precedence over all other claims. The enlisted soldier in the Roman Empire and the Roman army was to leave civilian life and had a new loyalty. He was not to be ensnared by everyday affairs. In fact, this word in verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs, uh, the pragmatia, the affairs of everyday life. Uh, it means to do trade, to do business. Uh, for example, if you found that word in Luke 19.13, that's what it refers to. And Roman soldiers were not to be involved in business. They were prohibited from that. And the idea is that we in the Christian army as soldiers must guard against the claims of the world's self-interest which encroach on the claims of Christ over us if we're in active service. That is, if we're really genuine believers. We're to be, yes, in the world, but not of the world. Now, this may have to do with economic self-interest. Um, Paul warns about that in his first epistle. Notice how uh, uh, Christians can be caught up in that. In uh, 1 Timothy 6, in verse 6, he says, Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's a real amazing statement. But if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, remember he's not talking about people outside in, of, in the world. He's talking about believers in the church. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Are riches bad? No, but when you idolize them, they are. For the love of money. When you love money over all else, is the root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many a pang, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now notice verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. You've got to be a good soldier, a loyal soldier, not to be caught up in that. Who even has this soldier metaphor already beginning back there in the first epistle when he's warning against getting involved in uh, uh, having too much of a commitment to uh, the things and the possessions of the world. So the idea is that we must guard against the claims of self-interest and the aspects of the world's everyday life which distract us from the word. Yeah, we live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. That is the key thing. Some of you might remember this, some may not, and it's happened a number of times since. But back in the 1980s, there was a, a major report about uh, 
Marine guards at the United States Embassy who had been found to be traitors. And uh, they professed one loyalty, but their actions showed they were committed to the claims, the claims of another loyalty, self-interest, ultimately the money they were being paid by the Russian government to be spies. I've known church leaders whose ministry has either been hurt badly or they've left the ministry because they had greater interest in financial concerns than anything else. Notice again the mark of the latter days in chapter 3, verse 1 of this epistle. Realize this in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. Well, that's always been the case, but it will increase. Lovers of money, boastful, etc. So it's easy to be ensnared by this self-interest, especially of financial gain. The good soldier must have utmost loyalty to his commander. Are we committed to Christ's claims on us or the claims of our own self-interest? Whether that be money or a hobby or sports, maybe a wrong relationship that we're in, some form of continuing immorality or sin that we just can't give up and we're, we're, we're committed to it. Are we in active service as Christian soldiers or do we act as if we've retired from such service? If we consistently guard God's word and learn it, we show Christ's claims over us and that we're not letting the world claim us and that we're not identified with the world. This is really the perseverance of the saints. The role of scripture and the perseverance of the saints. Something, well, you can get into scripture and you're an upper level spiritual Christian. That's not the way I think Paul is viewing it. Worldly entrapments prevent us from wholeheartedly seeking to please Christ who enrolled us in Christian service. And it's these kinds of entanglements that cause the fall of Christian leaders and of Christians. It leaves us open to sin and then to fall, as we'll see this evening uh, as we look at Adam and Eve. They didn't remember God's word. And what happened? They immediately fall. We'll talk about this evening. Look at the goal of verse 4, though. This is key. Because some of us might get the impression, oh, I've got to do this. This is a duty of mine. Yes, it is, because you're a soldier. Duty. But it's a duty you should love to do. Look at the end of verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Now notice, here's the goal, the main point of verses 3 and 4. So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. That's the goal of verses 3 and 4, to please the one who enlisted him. Do you desire to please the Lord? Do you take pleasure in desiring to please the Lord? In this context, especially by guarding the scriptures in your life, in your family's life, in the church. If you're a leader in the church or a minister here or elsewhere, are you one that really wants to please Christ? by making sure you're guarding and passing on the teaching of the apostles in the scriptures. Do we want to please the Lord? Or do we want to please ourselves? It's pretty black and white. And whatever you do, do you you do it because you want to please yourself or the Lord? There's a book of Puritan prayers. You've got to buy this book. It's called Valley of Vision. If you don't have it, buy it. I get no royalty from it. Um... But it's 210 pages of Puritan prayers. And in one of uh, the, a prayer per page, but in, in one of it, I remember the, 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 one of the lines, Lord, may I do nothing in my life that I cannot implore your blessing for. 
Are, you doing, are we doing things in our lives that we're pleasing ourselves and not the Lord, that we can't implore his blessing for? That, that helps clear out the air. Sometimes you may say, hmm, boy, is this right or is this wrong? <laughs> Ask, who am I trying to please? Remember Robert E. Lee, some of you have read about the Civil War, maybe you've seen documentaries on it. Toward the end of the war, things were bad, and it looked like they were going into losing battles, and they were. But his men loved him so much, they would do whatever he said. They wanted to please him. It was amazing. <laughs> Christ is a little bit more than a respected human general. Do we want to please our Lord? in our king. Is that our goal in life? And one of the ways to do it is guarding scripture. So in verses 3 to 4, Paul has given the first response to spiritual laziness and false teaching. And what is it? We must guard the treasure of scripture by suffering loyally. Being a loyal soldier does involve self-sacrifice and consequent suffering, which includes suffering resulting sometimes from those who disagree with our teaching and our preaching. For example, in chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul says in verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. What does he mean by that? Well, notice verse 15. You're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. They rejected to whatever significant degree his teaching and his ministry. That is a hard kind of suffering to go through. Christian leaders in churches can go through it. Individual Christians who aren't Christian leaders, maybe they're teaching Bible studies, maybe they're sharing their faith, and they're getting rejected. It's a a real form of suffering. Some of you have gone through it. The suffering is not only like the conflict encountered by a soldier's loyalty, but it's comparable to the stress of becoming a good athlete. So verse 5 gives us, That's the second response to spiritual laziness that spawns false teaching. Look at verse 5. If anyone also competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, what's the second response? Well, we must guard the treasure of Scripture by suffering not only with a loyal, in a loyal way, but in a lawful way. That sounds legalistic. Well, let's look at this picture. The easy way is not to be taken instead of the right way in our relationship with Christ. In fact, it's not going to be an easy way. First Thessalonians 3 says, the suffering you were destined for. Remember Revelation 14, go read it. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that's not always uh, living a comfortable life. This word in Greek, lawfully, that's used here, was used to describe the Greek Olympic Games. And it included not only the regulations of the actual contest or event that you were in, but it included the necessary training for it. Athletes would have to make an oath before a statue of Zeus, before they entered the stadium, that they had fulfilled 10 months of rigorous diet and training before they went in. And then, of course, they had to obey the rules as they were competing in the event. The idea is we don't win the crown unless we train adequately and strive according to the rules. And the crown here is not more jewels in our crown than other believers at the end of the age. 
The crown is salvation. This is a text on perseverance that's focusing on our relationship with the word of God in our persevering relationship with him. Who are we identifying with? Are we thinking God's thoughts after him or do we want to think the world's thoughts after it? That means who are we identified with? The Lord or with the world? There are no shortcuts to growing in the Lord, to spirituality, or to leadership. Now, some athletes, I remember back in high school, there were some athletes, these were, I mean, they were amazing, so much potential. I mean, I would kill myself to train for football season in the summer. I'd work out, all the weights, I'd run. I was just average. I had to work out hard just to kind of be average uh, in, 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 on the football team. These guys were so amazing. Man, they'd get drunk in the summer. You know, they wouldn't, you know, at various points, they wouldn't work out. You know, they, they'd play in the games when fall came. They were good. But they could have been amazing if they had worked out. And so it is with some Christians. And yet there are athletes who train, but don't train or play according to the rules. Uh, maybe you might remember this, but it seems like it was in the... Uh, Late 80s, I was watching a sporting event. It was a women's long-distance race. And, boy, it was nip and tuck. Kind of exciting. And they were going to come, uh, go in through a tunnel, pretty long tunnel, and after that they'd come out, and the finish line would only be a few yards away. And so they went in pretty bunched up into the tunnel. And after a few minutes, it was amazing. This woman came out sprinting. They'd never seen anything like it. The sportscasters were saying, this, this is amazing. This woman must be in such great shape. She sprinted and went across the finish line, and people were just oh, exalting her and saying, oh, that's amazing. How did you do it? Well, she did it by not running the race. She was hiding in the tunnel. And she wanted that momentary spurt of glory. Christian leaders like that spurt of glory without really getting into the scriptures. We have to be aware of that. They'll, they'll do anything. They may tell you great stories from the pulpit. They may act, you know, in a, in a very, uh, they may be great at telling jokes. I remember when I first started teaching, I told a joke. Very, very first uh, uh, semester of teaching. Students didn't laugh. I've never told jokes since then. <laughs> And I've realized that they still laugh, but now what happens is they don't laugh at what I say. They laugh at different things I do. And uh, so at, at, at any rate, um, but we have to be careful in this regard. Um, people will, will often uh, do things to get this momentary glory, and it doesn't last, and it's not going to build the people of God up. Don't compromise our training in scripture and prayer and don't take unlawful shortcuts during the contest. We cannot be slack in our study of God's word and expect to win the prize, to persevere. We must train hard. With respect to our training exercises in the scriptures, we must not allow the busyness syndrome that I talked about last night to infect us and to crowd out our training exercises. Do we have a time? Leaders of the churches, pastors, besides preparing for your sermons, do you have a time when you just come to the Word of God and in prayer? But then, do you carve out the necessary time for 
preparing for that Sunday sermon. If we're really in the latter-day tribulation, it's a matter of life and death that our congregations get the word of God, that they may persevere through it. We're not, we're not just living in a situation where our battle is with sin in our daily lives. It is. It is. But there's a greater battle. The powers of evil through false teaching are there attempting to infect us at every point. And we've got to have solid scripture teaching. And those of you who are not leaders, as you learn the scriptures, not only by coming to church, but as you study them yourself, you can disciple others as well. In addition to such scriptural training times, do we obey the laws of scripture when running the race of life? Whether it's compromising financial, compro- financially or compromising uh, sexually. So in verses 3 to 5, Paul has said we must guard the treasure of scripture by suffering loyally and lawfully. Having condemned self-interest, soldiers to be loyal, and having condemned Compromising, we're to follow the rules, but remember, that's from a desire of our heart. It's not just a legalistic duty, or it's not a legalistic duty. A duty, a duty we love and take pleasure in. But Paul now condemns another bad attitude, explaining a third way yet to guard the treasure of Scripture. Look at verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul is now telling us we must not only guard the treasure of Scripture by suffering loyally and lawfully, but also laboringly like a farmer. The farmer's got to take care of his field or his vineyard, watering it, pruning it, weeding it, planting it, harvesting it. It takes great great labor, strenuous effort. So the lazy farmer or the lazy Christian, lazy pastors, enjoy no fruit since they don't labor to produce any fruit. This is true on the material and especially the spiritual level. Listen to Proverbs 24, beginning at verse 30. I pass by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. And its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down when I saw or reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. How much do you and I labor in God's word? With regard to those who preach the word, I remember a number of years ago I got a mailer. And I don't remember the exact title, but it was something like instant sermon. Do you spend as much as four or so hours preparing for your sermon? Well, instant sermon can cut that down to two. And basically, they send you a sermon, you just preach it and um, get that immediate gratification. Um, If we don't labor much, we'll become like the lazy vineyard keeper of Proverbs whose poverty came without warning suddenly. We don't notice the harm being done to our vineyard, to ourselves and to our vineyard congregation until it's been damaged in a major way. We often don't see it or perceive it or feel it or hear it until the harm is great enough. Then it dawns on us. I remember when I lived in Massachusetts, uh, we had a lawn, and I began to see these raspberry bushes beginning to pop up around the edges of the lawn. And I thought, I want to let those grow. My kids were little. I said, next summer, when they're bigger, we'll go. It'll be so nice to go pick the raspberries. 
And so we did that the following summer. Then the following summer, we were gone for a year on a sabbatical to England. And those things continued to grow. And when we returned, they'd begun to take over part of my lawn. And I couldn't mow the edges. I'd get, you know, uh, um, scratched by, by the thorns. Um, but I kept letting them grow. I just didn't have time to, uh, to deal with them. And finally, uh, when I began to try to pull them up, they wouldn't come up easily. Uh, the ones I was able to wrestle out of the ground, they had roots. It was hard for me to believe. One to two feet long. And finally, there was no way I could get them out of the ground. So I just got these big clippers, and I, every year I just had to, to, to cut the stalks. Uh, but they were still there. It's that way sometimes in our lives. We don't tend our souls with the word of God. When we neglect this for long, roots of weedy sin begin to find a place in our hearts. And sometimes we allow this neglect to develop to the extent that we can commit serious sin. Or to the extent that it takes major spiritual surgery to cut out the wild roots from our hearts. We, we don't feel the damage being done. Maybe we don't hear it until the spiritual gangrene has spread. I remember uh, a doctor friend of mine had a fellow come into his office. And uh, he said, well, why are you here? He said, you know, doctor, I, I smell something. And I said, well, let me check you over. He said, I feel fine, but I smell something. And so doctor checked, checked him over. Finally checked his feet, and there was horrible, horrible abscess, huge hole in his foot that was smelling. It had gotten so bad. He was a diabetic, a bad case, and the, the nerve endings in his foot, they were gone. They were shot. They were, they were shot. He couldn't hear the damage being done. He couldn't feel the damage being done. Finally, when it was almost too late, I don't know if they had to cut his foot off or not. I don't think they did, but it was almost too late, he smelled it, and they were able to tend to it. It's that way sometimes with us. Our spiritual senses will be dulled unless we're in the scriptures. Remember, this is the living word of God that keeps us in a living, sensitive relationship with him. Remember Proverbs 24 again in the last two verses. A little sleep, a little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. But if we cultivate our souls with God's word, we'll reap spiritual fruits. What are you doing? What am I doing? To cultivate our spiritual lives every day. If we don't labor at reading the Bible and trying to understand it, and those in the ministry, if they don't labor at preparing the text for the Sunday evening or when uh, maybe Sunday morning or the Wednesday evening session, whatever it is, then they'll become overgrown with laziness. They'll have less of a desire to interpret the Bible and the people of God will suffer. Verses 3 to 6 have cautioned us from avoiding the necessary hardships of Christian service required by loyalty, lawfulness, and laboring. Though this is actually Paul's warning to Timothy and his disciples, remember, it's equally applicable to us. Though his focus is on the leaders, it's equally applicable to us. Because again and again, as I labored to show early, Paul and Timothy are examples to the believers. Not only in the way they became believers and saved by God's grace, but in their handling of the Bible, in their study of the Bible, 
Verses 3 to 6 have given us then three responses to the lazy spirit of our age. God's point for us in this passage is this. We must guard the treasure of Scripture by suffering in a loyal, lawful, and a laboring way. And this is how we respond to the lethargic spirit of the age. It spawns false teaching. Now, the three pictures of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer have four things in common. Think about it. First, they all suffer more than the regular civilian to carry out their tasks. The soldier has these obstacle courses and enemies. The athlete, the pain of training, the farmer, the elements, the insects, the uncertainty of the weather. All three give up privileges that civilians assume. And that's true with Christian leaders. It's true with Christians in general. It may be that as a student, you made a B on a test because the whole class was cheating and you wouldn't. It may be that in your job, you got passed over for advancement because you were not compromising financially or in some other way. Secondly, the soldier, the athlete, and the former all have a plan, a goal. For example, Christians want to grow in the faith, and if they have children, they want their children to grow in the faith. Sometimes, perhaps too often, they have no plan for how these things are going to occur. It's just supposed to happen somehow. Is it going to happen one day of the week at church? That's certainly crucial. But if, it's, if what's going on at church isn't backed up every day in the home, the proper spiritual growth may not happen. If we don't make concrete plans for how we and our children are going to grow in the Lord, it may not happen. Thirdly, the soldier, athlete, and farmer have a consistent lifestyle of discipline. They cannot carry out their vocations only by occasional spurts of spiritual energy or feelings. We must make scripture and prayer a natural part of our lifestyle, as I was talking about last night. Appreciate the uniqueness of the ordinary. If we don't, we may not be able to carry out our Christian vocation. Now, again, with regard to the soldier, listen to this description from Josephus, an ancient historian at the time of Jesus. He might have passed Jesus in the streets. You never know. He lived around the time of Jesus. Uh, This is a quotation I was drawn, uh, my attention was drawn to it by a fellow by the name of uh, Philip Towner in a commentary on First and Second Timothy, Josephus says this, this ancient historian, describing the soldier and their ordinary routine and the effects of it. Listen, this is partly what's behind Paul's description. Every soldier every day throws all his energy into his drill as though he were in action. Hence that perfect ease with which the Roman soldiers sustain the shock of battle. No confusion breaks their customary formation. No panic paralyzes. No fatigue exhausts them. All their camp duties are performed with the same discipline. The same regard for security, the procuring of wood, food supplies, and water is required. Each party has its allotted task. Nothing is done without a word of command. The same precision is maintained on the battlefield. Nothing is done unadvisedly or left to chance. This perfect discipline makes the army an ornament of peacetime and in war welds the whole into a single body. So compact are their ranks, so alert their movements, so quick their ears for orders, their eyes for signals, their hands to act upon them. None are slower than they in succumbing to suffering because of their continual training. And so it is with us in our training in 
the scriptures. Just as the soldier, athlete, and farmer may work hard for a long time and see no results, so must the Christian minister. Especially in this culture of immediate gratification, that's hard to do. We must read, pray, and obey the scriptures even when we don't feel like it and even when the world around us makes us further not feel like it. And Paul has this directly in mind at the end of this epistle in chapter 4. Verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means be ready when there's fruit and there are effects of your teaching and reading of God's word and when there seem to be no effects and when you don't feel spiritual or when no one is benefiting, it seems, from your teaching or preaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. It's already happening. They'll turn their ears away from the truth. This is very interesting how Paul concludes 2 Timothy. He concludes with the same images of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. In chapter 4, look at chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul says this, he's toward the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I would say that's a soldier metaphor. I have finished the course, (laughs) definitely. An athletic running metaphor I've kept the faith. Say, hmm, is that a farming metaphor? Well, the word for kept there is used of farmers keeping their fields and their vineyards, and it may indeed echo that. The way Paul concludes here, I think, further enforces our main idea of our text, that we're to guard the treasure of Scripture by suffering loyally, lawfully, and laboringly. And this is not just for the upper echelons of spiritual Christians. This is for the perseverance of the saints. For notice the conclusion in verse 10 of chapter 2. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What Paul has been talking about, this teaching is crucial for Christians and their imitation of their leaders in making Scripture central in their lives. Note how Paul explains in more detail in the following verses how we're to guard the treasure of Scripture. Look at 2.15, chapter 2, verse 15 of our epistle. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now again, that's for leaders. But again, the leaders are to be examples for others. And why do we need to handle accurately the word of truth? Is it because, well, the Bible's important? Yes. But especially it's because any point throughout the church age, false teaching is either infecting our churches or it's threatening to infect our churches because of the latter-day tribulation. And notice, after verse 15, he says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. It'll lead to ungodliness. Well, what? That's false teaching chatter. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among these are Hymenaeus and Philetus who've gone astray. So we have got to guard the deposit of Scripture. Otherwise... False teaching will fill that void in our church life, in our individual lives. It happens again and again and again. May God protect us from being self-interested instead of loyal. Protect us from being compromising instead of lawful. Protect us from being lazy instead of laboring. Note again how he concludes in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In season and out of season. Whether you're in the season of feeling like it or not feeling like it. Whether it's in the season of those who 
you may bear fruit because of what you say, or in the season where there is no fruit, be faithful to the scriptures. We may, must make the word our number one priority. What's your commitment to God's word individually, in your family, in our church? If you're a leader, what's your commitment to God's word? Are you spending the necessary time it takes to analyze God's word so that when you come and deliver it to the people of God, you are equipping them with an understanding of God's word so they can think his thoughts after him, so they may speak those things pleasing to him and do those things honoring to him. May God give us grace to guard that good deposit of scripture by suffering loyally lawfully laboring to it that we might ultimately please him.